So, Lord, pour your spirit out on Brian today. We thank you that it's not just printed words on paper, but it's words of life made alive by your Holy Spirit. So we submit this time to you, Lord, and we ask you to give us hungry hearts. You would give us revelation to be able to hear and receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. It's super awesome to be here again, and I'm excited and honored to share God's word with you and continue this, this series in Leviticus. We're in our third week now, and you'll remember when I, when I opened up this series a couple weeks ago, I said that Leviticus fundamentally is showing how God is calling a community to his presence. The Israelites, these recently freed slaves, are being called to the presence of God. And Leviticus shows us three aspects of that call to God's presence. There's holiness, which Pastor Sean talked about last week. The call to be distinct, set apart, to be different. And there's a call to community, to live with one another, to love one another. And today we're going to talk about the call to sinlessness, the call to be forgiven, to be set free from sin. And I argued that this is awesome news because God is still calling a community to his presence today. He still calls us into his presence. He still calls us to holiness. He calls us to forgiveness. And he calls us to community. And so our text today is going to solve a problem. When I concluded my first week, I said that one of the reasons why it's such awesome news that God is calling us to his presence is because we all long for the presence of God. We long for the presence of God. And so it's awesome news that that God is calling us to himself But there's a problem with that, and I want to dwell on that problem for a little bit before we get to our text, which gives us the answer to the problem, God's answer to that problem. And so I think that our our human experience, our collective human experience, is one of the most powerful pointers to the fact that we long for God. We long for God because nothing in this world satisfies And we know, uh, by admission or not, somewhere in our hearts, that nothing in this world can satisfy that for which we long. I mean, has anything, for anyone here in all the collective years we've lived, has it truly satisfied you? Perfectly and completely and lastingly satisfied you? Any relationship, any material thing, any experience, I will bet that the things that have come closest to that are relationships. But even if we're blessed with an enduring marriage or a friendship, we still know it's, it's temporary, right? People move away. People get sick and die. And even the best of relationships, the best marriage, the tightest friendship experiences hurt and pain and rejection. It's a mixed bag at best. Nothing is enough. A great job, a family, a great home, your bank account, accolades, awards, whatever it is. Do any of these really satisfy? There's always something beyond it, something else, right? I mean, do we ever reach a point where we say, that's enough, I got it. 
You know, several years ago, Tom Brady, who's the, the quarterback for the New England Patriots, in case you're not from New England and haven't heard of him like 50 times a day, <laughs> he gave an interview to 60 Minutes. And this is several Super Bowls ago, so the quote's a little dated, but I think it makes my point. Tom Brady's interviewing at 60 Minutes, and he says this. He says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings? So you can see this is a little old, but why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I've reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this, this can't be all it's cracked up to be. Now, whether you're a fan or not, one could argue that Tom Brady has just about the very best that this world could offer. Right? He's, he's got all the accolades and awards and fame, adoring thousands of hordes of fans that love him to death. He's in great physical shape. He's a pretty good-looking guy, if I might say so. He's got a beautiful wife. He's got kids. This awesome house on this golf course in Brookline and cars and whatever. He's got everything. What does he lack? And yet, he still feels the hollowness of it all. And this is even in the middle of his career, not when he's 41 and he's, his career's almost over, a lot of people think, right? This is right in the middle of it. He realizes the hollowness and the emptiness of it all. And it's not enough because he, like us, he longs for God. Eternal, unchanging, perfect, sufficient, awesome God. He's the only one who can satisfy. Only an infinite God has enough love for us. Only an infinite and all-powerful God can provide the full measure of peace and comfort and security and provision and love that we strive for all our lives. What we long for cannot be found in this world. St. Augustine understood this hundreds of years ago when he wrote, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Hundreds of years later, a French mathematician named Blaise Pascal would write, What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim? but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him. Yet this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite immutable object. In other words, by God himself. I closed last week with one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We long for God, and we're restless trying to fill up that infinite abyss, but we can't do it. We can't do it. And everything that seems to give us a taste of it is really just a pointer to the fact that we love God, that we're after him. Everything on this earth that gives us a, a taste of satisfaction is really just pointing to him. We really like him. I mean, why is a deep friendship such a blessing to us? It's because we were created for relationship and supremely for relationship with God. To be known by somebody and yet still loved and accepted to know somebody cares for you and would even sacrifice for you. 
This is a taste of what you hunger for in God. Do you enjoy beauty? Does, does your jaw drop at the, the staggering beauty of the Alps or a, or a sunset in the summertime? You long for God. He's more beautiful. He invented that stuff. He created Hawaii. <laughs> He's more beautiful. You appreciate those things. They, they make your heart sing because your heart was made to sing for God. Do you delight in justice? Why is it so good and satisfying to see the good guys win in a movie? To see the villains punished or destroyed? It's because we delight in God. We hunger for his justice, his righteousness. You know, tonight, and we're all friends here, so no judgment, okay? But tonight, I'm going to go see a movie with a friend who will remain anonymous but happens to be sitting here in this congregation. And we're going to go see the Avengers movie, the last Avengers movie. And to some extent, this is just a bunch of eye candy and stuff that's happening, and it's not really deeply meaningful yet. It still resonates to see these superheroes, right? Just wield this tremendous power to get rid of the bad guys and win, right? For goodness to prevail. There's something exciting about that. We're drawn to, to power when it's leveraged for good. You know, ever since I was a little kid, I loved aerospace technology and jets and stuff like that. It was actually my first job out of school, working for Lockheed Martin. And to this day, if a fighter flies over me, like an F-18 or something like that, I can hardly but just punch my fist in the air. Yes! That is so awesome! Look at that thing! Look at how fast it can go. Do you know what that thing can do? And that's just a hunk of aluminum that we made, right? God is more powerful. He's more amazing. I was made to hunger for that, to rejoice in him, in his power, in his glory. That's just a pointer to that fact when I see that. Why are we so moved and touched by romantic movies or by a hero who, who saves and protects somebody? because we hunger for that ourselves. We recognize our own helplessness, our own need for help. And when we see somebody do that, our heart sings. It feels good because we're made to hunger for God. We long for him, his infinite, perfect, inexhaustible love, for his presence, the security, the peace, the provision that never runs out. It has no end power that lacks nothing to protect and care for us. We long for his presence. We were created for his presence. We were made to be with him and enjoy him forever. And this is the problem statement of humankind. We were made for him, but we can't get to him. We can't get to him because of our sin. Because we've fractured that relationship. It's been distorted and perverted. We've turned away from the source of life and chased after other things. And so we can respond to this in, in just a handful of ways. One of the most common, the one that I identify with, because this was me about 15 years ago, is we're just ignorant of it. We deny it. And so we just wander around through life trying to fill up 
our need with all these transient, fleeting things of the world, not all of them necessarily bad, but we still wind up empty. You know, maybe, maybe this self-help book, maybe this religion, maybe this relationship, this job, this house, this award, once I get here, but it never works. Right? We just go around longing for God and striving for him. Maybe we don't even ever realize it. But in a few months, whatever we see just kind of fizzles out and we're left searching again. Or, especially in this day and age, we can just distract ourselves to death and just numb that pain. I can be entertained forever with this device. Right? Just give me a Netflix account. Right? There is enough entertainment being churned out and enough pre-existing entertainment that I can stream so I never even have to deal with that emptiness. I can just distract myself to death forever. Give myself to any number of things or video games, entertainment, sports, whatever it is. Not necessarily bad, but just keep it in the back of my mind. Don't think about it. Or maybe we recognize our own failings, our own sin, that we are truly guilty of moral guilt before a holy God. And so we strive to get to him ourselves. We try to earn our way back to him. We try to be good enough to be accepted and loved by God, to earn it so he owes us his presence. And the standard we try to live up to is impossible. And we wind up crushed and just as empty. We're trapped by our own imperfection a despondent, always wondering if we're good enough. Or maybe we delude ourselves into thinking that we're good enough already. I mean, it's not like I'm a murderer or anything. Right? God, God, will, God will let me in. Maybe I've told a lie or two or a thousand. I've, I've lusted after people who weren't my spouse. I've harbored judgment against a friend. I've gossiped and put others down so I feel better about myself. I've looked the other way at human suffering for my own comfort and convenience. But I'm not that bad. Right? God, God rejects the, the, the murderers and, and, and you know, the dictators and rapists and pedophiles. Those, those are the people who are rejected by God. But me, I'm actually on balance. You know, I'm all right. But as we'll see a, a few minutes in our text, when we get to it, it just it can't work like this. And so we long for God, but we can't get to him. We can't get him by ourselves. It's a problem. But it's not just our problem. It's actually a problem for God. Because if he judges us as we deserve, he loses us. What then of his faithfulness what about his love for his people? He loves his creation. He loves us. We're the apple of his eye. He made promises to his people. He promised Abraham, the father of the Israelite people, that he'd make him into a great nation and prosper them. And he promised to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham. Is he going to renege on that promise? Is he going to be unfaithful? But if he accepts us, he loses himself. What then of God's righteousness? What about his justice? How could we possibly call him good if he didn't deal with sin and evil? 
God's completely good, completely good. He can't tolerate any evil, no matter how small we might think it is. He's perfect. There's no little chink in that armor, no inconsistency within him, such that he could let something slide. He has to judge sin and evil. So how will a sinful people live with a holy God? God has called a community to his presence, but how is that going to happen? How is a sinful people going to live with a holy God? How will a good and just God love and accept a sinful people? Well, Christianity shows us how, and our text today points to how God will judge our sin without judging us. And so turn with me, please, to Leviticus in chapter 16. And we're going to read just a few snippets from this. It's, it's kind of long, and I'll try and fill in the blanks. We're going to read Leviticus 16. That's the third book in your Bible, about midway through. We'll read 1 through 10, and then 29 through 34. So listen carefully with me to what God's Word says in Leviticus 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. And from the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram as a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his whole household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native-born or a foreigner residing among you, because on this day atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then, before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. It is a day of Sabbath rest, and you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. The priest who was anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. He is to put on the sacred linen garments and make atonement for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting in the altar, and for the priests and all the members of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And it was done as the Lord commanded Moses. So let me try and walk you through this text a little bit. 
So as we discussed a couple weeks ago, the Israelites are recently freed slaves, freed by God, and now called to a community that will live in his presence. And at God's command, they've built a tent, a tabernacle, the tent of meeting, which is the focal point and constant reminder of God's presence. And within this tent was an area called the Most Holy Place. And this is where the Ark of the Covenant was, a golden container that held the stone tablets of the law in them. This was the the covenant, the, the agreement God made with his people at Mount Sinai. And in it were also some special items to remind the Israelites of God's faithfulness to them. And directly above the ark was the place where God's presence in all its holiness and glory and intensity rested. And it was so intense that the most holy place was sectioned off from the rest of the tent by a thick curtain. And nobody could go into this place except for one person, the high priest. And Aaron was the high priest to the Israelites. He's the the mediator, the the go-between between between God and the Israelites. He stands in the gap. He bridged the gap between the people on earth and the God in heaven, the only one allowed to enter the most holy place. But even he could not just enter the most holy place in the presence of God whenever he wanted to. Earlier in chapter 10 of Leviticus, two people were killed for doing just that. And our text describes how Aaron enters that place. He must remove his priestly clothes, these elaborate clothes that he would have worn that make him look like a king. He replaces those with simple garments, a linen tunic, shorts, a belt, and turban, a little more clothes than a slave would wear. And he must sacrifice a bull for his sin and the sin of his family. And once Aaron had done this, he enters the most holy place and he uses the blood of the bull as well as the blood of the goats to make atonement for sins. And atonement is a word, you may have heard this before, it's an invented word by a fellow named William Tyndale, who was one of the first translators of the, of the Bible to English. And it's literally at one meant. It's the making of God and man one, atonement, at one meant. And so this sprinkling of blood is purifying the tabernacle from all the sins and uncleanliness of the Israelites. So what's really happening? What's happening is the blood of these animals, it's covering the people's sins. The animals, the bull and the goat, are dying instead of the people. God judges the animals instead of their sin. The animals take the place of the people and die in their stead. But all this blood sprinkling that's going on in the most holy place, that wouldn't be seen by the Israelites. It happened behind this this curtain. Nobody could see it. So there's another goat, which again is a made-up word by Tyndale, which is translated as scapegoat. And this goat provides a visible sign to the community. So the high priest Aaron lays his hands on the scapegoat's head, and he confesses all the sins of the people on this goat's head. All the sins of the community symbolically rest on this goat. And then this goat is taken outside of the camp, cast away from the community, cast out of God's presence and into the wilderness. Symbolically, this shows them that sin is removed from the community. It's completely and utterly removed from the sight of God and the sight of the Israelites. The goat is bearing the guilt and punishment that's due the people 
It's the Israelites who should be cast out of God's presence. But the goat is a substitute for them, a proxy for the people. Goat, God judges the goat instead of the Israelites. And so what we see here, how God solves this great problem, how can God accept and dwell among a sinful people? He judges their sin without judging them. The animals pay the price. And this temporarily satisfies God's judgment on sin. Sin is dealt with. Evil is punished. God gets his people back, and they get him. Easy, right? Well, not really. I want you to notice some very important things in this. When you, when you consider the Day of Atonement and the sacrificial system that you read about in Leviticus in general, all these burnt offerings and sin offerings that we read about in the first seven chapters of Leviticus, you see very clearly that sin is costly. Now, for an agrarian society, destroying an animal was like destroying part of their livelihood. It was expensive. Imagine if once a year we all came to church and burned a big pile of money right here on the altar. How many people would actually show up that day? Like, bring your money, we're going to burn it on the altar. Right? That's exactly what's going on here. And even if you consider the practical nature of this, it's costly. Think of all the time consumed to prepare for the rituals, the logistics of slaughtering an animal, cutting up its carcass, burning it. That's this tremendous expense of time and effort. Sin is costly. And note that at the end of the chapter, the Israelites have to deny themselves on this day. They were to abstain from work. And likely denying themselves here means that they they were to fast. It was a time of repenting, of considering your sins. It evinced a heart attitude that sought after God, that was sorry for sin. The whole nation, including the foreigners among them, had to do this. So the ritual with the high priest really isn't enough. The whole community participates. So this isn't cheap grace. This is prayer and fasting. It's indicative of repentant hearts, people who are sorry for their sin. It's a costly, time-consuming, messy endeavor. David gets this concept later on in 2 Samuel when he refuses to sacrifice something that he hasn't paid for. And he says that's because a sacrifice that costs nothing is no sacrifice at all. God judges their sin without judging them. And as you read through the Bible you notice that even the scriptures acknowledge that this sacrificial system that we just described, it's imperfect. It's not good enough. Chapter 10 in the book of Hebrews reads like this. It says, The law can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This is right in our text today. Three times it mentions at the end that this is a lasting ordinance. It has to happen year after year after year. Doing it once isn't enough. 
So the Day of Atonement takes place year after year after year. And secondly, if you think about it a little bit, how is it the case that an animal has the same worth as a person, let alone a whole community? How does a bull count as adequate payment for the high priest and his whole family? One bull equals several humans? Two goats cover an entire nation? Yes, these animals have great worth to the people, but is it equivalent? Is it enough? The animal's blood covers the people just as the blood of the lamb did at Passover, but it doesn't take the sin away permanently. Because the Day of Atonement and the sacrificial system that we see in Leviticus is only a temporary solution to our problem. But more than that, it's foreshadowing. It's pointing forward. It's anticipating the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. As Hebrews again says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, an ultimate payment for sin, a final sacrifice that never needs to be repeated. The Day of Atonement points us to Christ on the cross. Instead of an animal, what about a perfect human being? Instead of a flawless animal being killed instead of us, What if a flawless human being is killed instead of us? The only truly innocent person ever to walk the earth, a perfect, sinless man sheds his blood instead of us. And what if this perfect man is also God? He's not worth just one human. He's infinite. He's human and God at the same time, the God-man. A sacrifice of infinite worth, God's own son, very God of very God, killed as a sacrifice instead of us. It's infinite worth to cover billions upon billions of people and their billions upon billions of sins, the sins of the whole world. And the scriptures make this link for us. Isaiah prophesies about it in Isaiah 53. He talks about the suffering servant, and upon him the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, God made Jesus, him who had no sin, to be sin for us. Peter says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross in 1 Peter 2. And even more, what happens in the Gospels when Jesus dies on the cross? Matthew, Mark, and Luke all note that the curtain in the temple The division between the most holy place of God's presence and the rest of the world is torn in two. The very moment Jesus dies, the Gospels note this, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom completely. And this represents that this most holy place of God's presence is no longer inaccessible to us. Jesus' sacrifice has made a way for us to approach God directly. Jesus says this in the Gospel of, the John, uh, Gospel of John. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I came to show you the way? Nope. I am the way. I am the way to the Father. Chapter 10 of Hebrews builds on it again. It says, we now have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Hebrews ten nineteen. Because God has judged our sin without judging us. 
God still calls a community to his presence, and a sinful people can dwell with a holy God because of a sacrifice, because of Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Jesus pays for all our sins, past, present, and future, so we are right with God and we can go to him. And even better, God himself, the Holy Spirit, dwells within us because of the blood of Jesus. God has judged our sin without judging us. That is the kind of God we have. He calls a community into his presence, and he makes a way for that to happen. He's faithful and loving, but holy and righteous at the same time. He's judged our sin without judging us. We get him, and he gets us. Things are made right again, the way things were supposed to be from the beginning. And this is good news. Because it's all we ever wanted. It's the final solution to our endless striving to fill up that for which we long. It's the hinge point in history. Leviticus has shown us how God calls a people to his presence and how he makes that possible. Jesus is the fulfillment and completion of this great mission, this great story that we study from the early books of Scripture to the end, the ultimate solution to our problem, the final sacrifice for our sins so we can be right with God. We can dwell in his presence forever, perfectly, no more striving. Because God has judged our sin without judging us. He solved that problem on the cross of Christ. Have you received that? Have you received that today? Today can be your day of atonement. Being made one with God again. Having all your guilt and shame and sin wiped away forever. God himself dwelling within you. The one who makes you holy. And then you can be with him forever, perfectly. Today can be that day where your sin's completely removed from your sight and God's. Will you receive that? If you've already accepted Christ as your Savior, maybe you're like me, and let me tell you what happened this week as I was getting ready for this message. So I preached this message back in January at at Waltham, and I knew this week was coming up, so I reread my message again. I'm kind of going over it. This is about five days ago. And I got to the end... And I thought to myself, I'm like, you know, that's, that's all true, but it's just the gospel again. You know, it's just the atonement. And no sooner had that synapse fired to think that thought, I felt the Holy Spirit, excuse me? <laughs> Beg your pardon? It's just the gospel. It's just the atonement. Now tell them something cool, right? <laughs> bring, bring, some, you know, bring some cool angle to things. Tell them how to raise their kids. Tell them how to work their job. Tell them how to be happy. Give them some new angle, something novel, something special. Entertain them. This is just the gospel. Seriously, Marcioni? Seriously? And I had to repent. That very thought 
evinces the fact that that great and glorious truth is not fully activated in my life and in my heart. Because that is the story. You don't need a cooler angle. That infects everything in your life. That drives everything you do. That's everywhere. It's constantly in your mind. Everything you do. You're a sinner, freed by God's grace. You're free. You don't have to check the boxes and earn his favor anymore. You're free to do it because you've been accepted, because he's, he loves you. That should make our hearts sing every second of the day. It's not enough. It's not cool enough. Are you kidding me? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. He died for your sins. He rose again to give you new life in him. He lived the life that you should have lived. He died the death you should have died, a sinner's death between thieves. And you didn't deserve it. He didn't earn it. You can't lose it. And it's the most glorious thing that everything you've ever wanted is yours for free. For free. For the rest of your life, you can live that way. That's not enough. That's not cool enough. Give me a break. So repent with me. Repent with me today. If you've received that already, ask God to activate that in your life to make it real. Every day you could wake up and, oh my goodness, thank you, Lord, that I'm saved. Can you believe what would have happened? What would have happened if no one told me? What if I never understood? What if you never brought conviction to my heart and I never received that? What would have happened? How could I live my life? It's purposeless. It's meaningless. It's useless. What a waste. No, not true. I've saved you. You're mine. So receive that today. Let that be activated in your heart. It's true. It's still true. It was true thousands of years ago. It's going to be true thousands of years from now. So I'll ask the band to come up and we can pray and let's respond. Lord God in heaven, forgive us, Lord, if we have ever taken Christ's sacrifice, his atoning death on the cross for our sin, for granted. Or in a casual matter, as if it is not the very center and crux of your plan to save us. Would you, would you activate that in our hearts? Would you help us live every moment in light of that great truth? Would it drive everything we think, we say, we do? Would we tell the world about it, Lord Jesus? Help us live that out. We are sinners saved by your grace. You have judged our sin without judging us. Father, if there's anyone here today who's never made that step, that first step to accepting you, to realizing they need a Savior in their lives, would you just touch their heart right now, open up their heart, Lord God, would they receive that, that great and glorious salvation that you've been promising for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, Lord God, it's ours today. 
stir our hearts, Father. We're so grateful for you. Thank you for your word. Bless this time as we respond. We love you and pray these things in the great and powerful name of Jesus, our Savior. Let's stand together. I would ask elders, different people in leadership and ministry teams, if you could step forward. I'm going to read out of 1 John. This is the message we've heard from him. What you just heard was this message. And declare to you, God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. We walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So I'm going to give an invitation in three ways. Those of you, anyone here that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, that wants to experience his atonement, I invite you to come down and pray with one of our friends here. They'll pray with you and lead you in that relationship. If you need to confess your sin to someone else and tap into this fresh washing of the eternal blood of Jesus. To do that. This is a, a time you can do it at any point in time of day or night. But when we're together, we experience God's presence in a fresh way. It's the awareness of his love is heightened. The, the reality of all this truth is brought to conviction in our lives in a deeper way. So as we worship, I encourage you, you can confess it to someone else confess it to him. You bow here. We're going to worship the Lord and invite you to, to tap into the fresh life of his cleansing presence.